There are two treaty partners in Aotearoa, Tangata Whenua and Tangata Tiriti. And it doesn't actually matter where you are or who you are except in those two forms. It is just as important for the NGO and the community sector to be 100% gold standard informed about the treaty as it is for Treasury or the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Community Research Aotearoa are bringing to you our new podcast channel, bringing community practitioners, researchers and evaluators to you wherever you are. Our first series focuses on Te Tiriti or Waitangi and the way different practitioners apply the intent and principles in their respective mahi across kaupapa Māori research, education, climate change, homelessness and community development. This is Kay Marie Dunn and I look forward to opening up this dialogue and kōrero for your listening pleasure. Introducing Dr Cathy Irwin who has engaged in research in Māori education for over 30 years. Cathy reflects on the influence of her grandparents and provides her perspective on the importance and application of te tiriti in research, policy and within her new role heading Māori development for the Retirement Commission. I actually wanted to be a professional singer but you know my parents are both teachers and my brother and sister are, are teachers too, my grandmother was a teacher and I think in 1973 as a young Māori woman who had had two years of classical opera training by that time from Gerda Pons who lived in Hastings and who had been the lead soprano for the Netherlands State Opera Company. She wanted to send me away to sing and I think my parents felt it just wasn't solid enough, you know, good Presbyterian background and so that was a cow. That was the biggest fight of my life. That was a cow. But what they said is, you go to Teachers College and if you come back to Hastings every fortnight and do singing lessons for a year, then they would send me to London. So I did that for six months. But of course what happened was the teaching bug got me, the education bug got me, and I realised I could teach and sing but I couldn't sing and teach, so I gave the singing away. One of the most greatest loves of your life at this moment in time is your mokopuna. Ropata. Yeah, I try not to put my whole life on his shoulders because that's kind of unfair. He's just an absolute darling. There's an energy. There's a nanny mokopuna energy that's indescribable until you feel it. I make sure that whenever he comes to me, it's just about him. So if he wants to watch... Garfield eight times in a row we watch Garfield eight times in a row um, just absolutely love him yep and I do things with him that are about setting up in his mind very clear ideas that he is loved that he is honoured that he is a taonga tuturu so that when those other voices and they will come later in his life, try to give him a different narrative about who he is and where he comes from, he will always have me in his ear, that alternative story about who he is. So you've come from uh, whānau, deeply Presbyterian, and uh, also educationalist teachers. What is your understanding of te tiriti or waitangi, and were those discussions that you were having at that age, um, growing up with your whānau, or was it something that emerged for you over time? The understanding that I have of Te Tiriti is that it is the foundational document of Aotearoa. It is the document that offered a blueprint to this nation 
of a kind that didn't exist anywhere else in the world. We're talking 1840. Our ancestors signed up to something that didn't exist anywhere, so they signed up in faith, with hope, and a very clear mātauranga base to what they knew was possible about how to live in communities together. And they signed up to something we are all still honouring. And I guess the understanding I have came from the praxis that I saw my grandparents exhibit and my parents. I didn't read any textbook about the treaty probably until I was at varsity. But what I saw my Fano do was create a legacy in which the vision of the treaty came to life. So my grandfather was born in the Orkney Islands, came to New Zealand when he was a boy and became a fluent speaker of Māori and dedicated his life to ministering in Māori communities through the church. We would call that now service leadership, servant leadership. Posted first to Peel in 1914, built the church there with his father, and then to Mangapuhatu in 1918 when Rua Kenana was ensconced in Auckland. My grandmother, um, very interesting story, Ngāti Parau Rakai Parker, born in 1899 in a strong Mormon whānau, 19 children, was the only child who at age 15 met the Presbyterians who had arrived in the New York community and understood from them that there was a secondary education option available for Presbyterian girls. But you had to be a Presbyterian. So at age 15, she converted from Mormonism to Presbyterianism. She left Nuhaka for Turukina, which is the other side of the country, and enrolled in Turukina Māori Girls College as the 149th pupil in 1915. Her vision and passion honouring what we would now say is a dual world model that the treaty still promises this country. She made choices about as an adolescent. Now, I don't know what you were doing when you were 15, but I certainly at age 15 wasn't taking on that kind of a massive paradigm shift, not something that her whanau were happy about initially, although they came to terms with it. And so she became the, the role model for our whole whanau. When she finished at Turukina in 1917, she was the ducks when she left. She was appointed in 1918 to a Presbyterian school in Waioho as a teacher. In our research, she's the first Māori woman teacher in the Presbyterian Mission Service that we can find. So she was a professional woman in her own right before she met my grandfather. He was at Mangapuatu, she's just up the road at Waioho, both living outside of their own, um, him outside of his cultural worldview, she outside of her iwi, Tūranga Waiwai, and they came together through hope, through faith and through love. Married in 1921, he was ordained as a minister in 1921, and then together worked for decades not only contributing to Turukina, so they were on the Board of Governors there, they, you know, one of the dormitories was named Lawton Dormitory after them. They sponsored all sorts of girls to be able to go there. She saw education as the way ahead. For him, service through faith was his kaupapa, but both of them landed working for our people for decades. What they did with the Presbyterian Church was absolutely revolutionary. So he became part of the Māori mission service within the church and by 1947 they had persuaded the Presbyterian church that if the church wanted Māori to come to Presbyterianism, Māori would only come if they could still be Māori 
And so they wrote hymns in the reo. They wrote a Māori service book in the reo. They built a marae at Ohope, the Māngārongo marae, so that Māori Presbyterians could be Māori in the expression of their faith. Um, and by 1956, they had created a separate Māori synod within the Presbyterian Church. Um, the Anglican Church has done a similar tripartite constitutional reform. This reform was signed off by the Presbyterian Church in 1956. So I, I have these radical thinking, thought-leading activists as grandparents who created change throughout the whole of the Presbyterian Church in New Zealand. So my grandfather became the moderator of the Presbyterian Synod, which is the top job. Um, he was also the inaugural, although, you know, Kariya he tanga the Māori. Um, he was the inaugural moderator of the Māori Synod to get it up and going. So I was born in 1956. They were doing all of this way before I came along. My mother was the fourth child of that marriage. She married Māori Presbyterian, married a Catholic, Pākehā. Um, they both taught in the native school system. That's where they met. So two generations of the Pākehā men in my family had committed to working in Māori development before they met the Māori women that they fell in love with and married. Um, and I guess what that has been important to me in relation to is that I've had role models from both sides of the treaty in my own whānau saying, this nation signed up to the treaty and we're going to make it work. We're going to make it work through education. We're going to make it work through our faith. And that's the energy they brought to their work, to their lives. My parents only worked, fished and gardened. They didn't have social lives outside of that. That was it. Um, so I grew up in a household that in many respects was quite atypical but that's what I grew up knowing and then I went to teachers college and um, met another world <laughs> but that's where I come from so my understanding of the treaty is about finding ways to live the dream and live the vision and getting on with it and that's the important part getting on with it and using the gifts that our tipuna have given us uh, to make a difference in that regard. Have you had to apply uh, to Tiriti Lens to your mahi as an educator, evaluator and researcher? And can you give us some live examples of that? Absolutely. So when I was at high school, um, one of the things that happened was that every girl at Hastings Girls High School in the third form had to do a speech. And I did a speech on my grandfather and got really interested in public speaking as a result and spent... I think the most exciting energy of my secondary years was in Kurimako speech competitions, which are now called the Manukurudu competitions. And so my adolescence was spent researching issues around Māori youth, Māori society, Māori culture, Māori unemployment. So although I wouldn't have been able to say this then, as an adolescent, you know, I was becoming what Freyer would describe as a highly conscientised adolescent understanding the structural and historical politics that influence the context that young people live in and that whānau live in. So then I got to Teachers College and had the opportunity um, through my teacher training to go further uh, because at that time people who were enrolled at Palmerston North Teachers College were also enrolled at Massey at the same time. You had one enrolment that counted for two different qualifications. And so by the time I finished Teachers College, I had two-thirds of a degree, as well as my teacher training. 
And through that teacher training, what and the messy connection, and I did a lot of sociology papers on my way through, what became really clear to me was that teacher training was ahistorical, it was astructural, and it was atheoretical. We were taught what to do on Monday morning to keep a whole lot of kids busy. And that meant that it was a depoliticised teacher training, and it didn't actually give us the understanding that we needed to be able to really put our teaching practice into a historical context to understand ourselves as teachers, as agents of change, and to work in much more sensitive and empathetic ways with the Māori kids that we were teaching with. So my messy, I, I just think messy saved me. A, I would have left Teachers College before I finished, and B, I would have left incredibly angry, and it would have been an anger that I had no way of understanding, probably for many years. So I really love the fact that the ability to have a university edge to what we were doing gave me a different analysis. It really did. And then um, I taught for a couple of years and Massey advertised the junior lecture in Māori education. And we'd all come through Massey and um, I'd finished my degree a year after Teachers College and then taken another year to do honours. And when we saw this thing <laughs> in the staff room at Monrad Intermediate, we all thought it was a joke. You know, my mates, a couple of whom I'd gone to Teachers College with, we Kaipuke and Nihihauya, sort of dug me in the ribs and said, go on, go on, you've got an honours degree. Apply, girl. Um, and we kind of all wrote the application together in the Monrad staff room. And long story short, I got the job, took over um, a Māori education course that was being taught at the time at the third year and had the chance. Um, I was working with a man who was about to retire, so I taught with him for the first year. And then I had the chance to rewrite the degree, uh, not the degree, the paper. So the paper, he was a psychologist by training, and so a lot of the paper was about how to work with people at an attitudinal level. And when I got the chance to rewrite the paper, I was able to write the history and the structural analysis and to build the treaty in so that teaching practice became a part of an ongoing historical struggle. And it wasn't just about if you had the right attitude, you could create good outcomes. It was much more complex than that. And from that, Throughout all of the courses that I wrote and through the research um, that I've done, the treaty is embedded as a central part in how we understand education, the machinery of government and the circumstances in which our people find themselves today. Have you placed it there as a central pole in your work? Uh, has it just evolved in that way or has it just become a imperative that Tiriti was, was a central part of? of the things that you were involved in at that time? Utter imperative. You cannot understand teaching, you cannot understand education, you cannot understand where Māori are at as a people if it isn't a treaty-formed analysis. And I came to that realisation in the early days at Teachers College when people really were, to be fair to them, uh, the, the educational theory at the time enabled them to behave in this way, really understood the world as if it was a level playing field, as if everybody had equal opportunity, as if if you did well you worked hard, as if if you didn't do well then there must be something wrong with you or you just didn't apply yourself or you know maybe you weren't the sharpest knife on the block or the brightest one. 
when you take a critical analysis view, when you take a culpable Māori view, you don't start with the individual, you start with the history and you start with the structure. And that's why the treaty for me is absolutely imperative in everything that I do. Or we cannot understand where we are today without getting into victim blaming and judging, you know? If only those Maori people, if only they, you know, worked a bit harder. If only they actually took that land they owned and did something with it. Do you know sometimes they don't even cut that shrub down? You know, all that, what actually is fundamentally epistemological racism, the belief that the culture and the language of the treaty partner is the norm and the culture and the language of the tangata whenua is not, that's the big problem that we grapple with. Thinking about that and taking it further around the role of tetriti, justice, restoration and the link to evaluation and research, how do you make the connections between the three? The thing for me is that when you bring together the treaty partners and you bring together the bodies of knowledge that inform the thinking and the worldview of each. You've got two sets of ideas that you can use to create change. And the point that is, I guess, of real uh, significance for me is the critical theory that hit Aotearoa in the mid-1970s. Now, if you think about the mid-1970s, we've got the Hikoi. It was also the year that the Waitangi Tribunal Act was passed, which enabled the retrospective view of the treaty to become a clearer part of restorative justice in this country. It was the International Year for Women. So 1975, there's a whole lot of fervour and change going on in New Zealand, including this time in the universities, because critical thinking had a Marxist whakapapa to it, and it started with the fundamental proposition that society is unequal, not that society is equal and that people have been placed into circumstances for a whole lot of reasons that are not about them. So when you combine a critical theory analysis with a kaupapa Māori analysis and a mātauranga Māori worldview, there was two different sets of ideas about creating change that came together really nicely. Critical theory argues that any social issue can be understood at three distinct levels, at the structural level, at the organisational level and at the personal level. So any time you're working with, in my case, education, and that's why my courses were all written, to have that structural historical component, to have the organisational component, what actually happens at the school level, and then to be able to work at that individual level. What are we doing with our children on a daily basis? How is our practice landing on those children? The other part of the equation is understanding what Māori society looks like at the structural level, at the organisational level and at the individual level as well. So what, what the treaty does for me in my practice is it requires me to bring together now those two ways of understanding the world to look for the synergy, to look for the solutions and to be able to understand the issues we're dealing with in a sophisticated way that is much more than seeing Māori as the victims of their history. You know, we are 
rewriting colonisation in a global context. The models that are being developed in Aotearoa for Indigenous education, Indigenous development, those models are touted by the United Nations. They are looked at all around the world from little old Aotearoa. And our people know that and get on with that when we have a chance to experience rangatiratanga, when the Crown doesn't get in the way. So the treaty is absolutely critical in any sense of restorative justice so that we can understand what we are due. And also in my work in education, you know, one of the things I argued in my doctorate is that the Māori education system, the traditional Māori education system, in my analysis, is still alive and well. And that explains why we are able to be so innovative and creative because we are not solely reliant on the school system. If we were, we may well have suffered the fate that colonisation had designed for us. We certainly have been impacted by it and it has been traumatising in very deep ways, but it is simply not the case that the Māori education system has been destroyed by colonisation. We move actually as border crosses between the two and that is the key to our success. And so um, you've taken that framework and that approach of thinking and analysis across different areas in your career path. So you've uh, worked in universities in Kohangareo. Which other areas have you worked across as well? So education for 20 years basically through the mainstreams the white streams, through universities, through teachers' college, polytechnics, and in the Wānanga sector. So I was at Awanui in the Wellington campus and on the board at Aotearoa for four years. And then I kind of got to a point where I thought I just felt that knowledge wasn't creating the change that we all thought it would. So, you know, you spend 20 years of your life researching and writing and teaching and bringing together with a whole group of other um, educators a body of knowledge that can create the change we are looking for. And it's not happening fast enough. So I jumped out of the education system and went into the Crown sector. So I've been at probably now for a good solid 10 years, Tipuni Kokiri, the Families Commission, the Human Rights Commission, Office of the Children's Commission, ACC, Head of Māori and Culture Capability, um, and now I'm at the Retirement Commission. So I've jumped into the machinery of government space trying to redesign the machine and trying to rewire the machine from the inside. You're right at the precipice of change and using knowledge and then also applying it in how to make organisations shift and change their their approach to Māori. So landing in your role with the Retirement Commission, which has had a bit of a rebrand, what's the new Māori name for the Retirement Commission? So we are Te Ara Ora Retirement Commission. That's about the pathways to wellbeing and being able to understand those in cultural terms, in emotional terms, in spiritual terms and in economic terms. Um, It's not just about do you have five million dollars invested in the bank, that is a part, the economic aspect of ageing is definitely a part of it, Um, but it's not the only part. So one of the projects I'm leading in the commission space is what does retirement look like for Māori? Uh, and of course, some of our people come straight back and say, ha, there's no such thing as retirement for Māoris. <laughs> and of course, that's right. As we age, we have more opportunity to do more work and to have greater influence. And that's what Kaumatua Tanga and Pakekitanga is all about. Um, but there is an element of which also New Zealand society says, at 65, you are eligible for something called super. And the superannuation payment can change 
ageing considerably. So one of the statutory functions our organisation has is the role of advising the government every three years on retirement income policy and my project is feeding into that review. So there's the Whanaketanga Māori, Māori development side, which um, you're overseeing. And inside of this, um, you've already started to apply the treaty principles. Can you please unpack for us, uh, one, why did you bring that into the organisation? And then also, how is the organisation behaving as a result? My view is that if there is a piece of national policy developed by the Crown, And if that is not informed by the Treaty of Waitangi, then it's quite possibly a breach of the Treaty. The Crown has set its own rules about how policy should be developed, and those are gazetted and set out in all sorts of different circulars. Um, There is advice that agencies are supposed to take on how to engage with Māori, how to apply the Treaty in terms of the the articles of the treaty and also the principles derived from the treaty over a period of years out of treaty and and, um, legal jurisprudence. Agencies are not actually allowed anymore to operate in the Crown sector as if they don't have a connection with the treaty. So I was really interested in the Retirement Commission role when I saw it um, because I thought to myself... One of the key things that people understand in the retirement space is something called compound interest. You know, if you put away money over 20 years, the interest on it compounds and you end up with a much bigger nest egg at the end of your savings and investment journey, which of course all assumes that you have surplus cash to invest in the first place. And it assumes that you have a standard of living and a probably home ownership model that enables you to live well and still have surplus income. Those are things that are not given for many Māori whānau. What we get to experience too often is not compound interest of our financial investments, but the compound impact of racism throughout our whole lives across the education system, across the health system, in the justice system. And so rather than having our money grow into this lucrative nest egg to sail away on a yacht when you reach 65, too many of our people are actually travelling towards 65. And if they reach 65, so we have different life expectancy levels, Our research is showing us um, too many of our people are arriving at 65 with significant health concerns, patterns of health concerns that the non-Māori community presents with at 85. Too many of our people are presenting with at 65. Um, The Waitangi Tribunal Inquiry Y2575 into Health makes it clear that the Crown has had a structural role in the health inequities that we face. And a similar analysis can be made in education and in health as well. Those are not the grounds on which you prepare for an, a, a life of pakekitanga in which you are healthy and well and vibrant, the kind of nanny that I want to be for my mokopuna so that when he's running down the beach I can keep up with him and so that I'm alive when he's an adolescent to tell him his whakapapa and the stories of his whānau, too many of our people 
have, rather than the compound interest, they can bank the compound impact of racism. And our work must shed a light on that, and it must ensure that the advice that's being given to government makes it clear that it is not a level playing field that our people arrive at if they're lucky enough to live to 65. That's called structural inequity and something should be done about it. And so inside of um, your organisation you've got a range of principles, in particular um, tenoranga tiratanga, equity, active protection, options, partnerships as well. Why were those particular principles developed for the Commission? They mirror the principles that are, are current in the treaty discourses that have emerged out of the Waitanga Tribunal cases and also out of the court cases. And what we've done is we've said we need to be clear what they mean for us in our role. Our interpretation of them may be different from some other organisations, but they were about being able to look at our statutory functions and speak to them in real ways. Often our queer komatua get busier mm-hmm. uh, by the time they hit 65 and beyond, um, but also it was mentioned um, that actually financially we're less better off. But the expectation culturally and the expectations of our community and of our whanau have increased dramatically. Do you feel that we will probably unpack a lot of that in the discussions that will emerge? We're really interested to give people a chance to have their say. Um, we know that there are a range of stories out there to be heard. So, you know, um, when, I, when we were first drafting this project, I happened to be having a copy with a person who is a millionaire, a Māori millionaire, who said, well, that's not my story and I don't need that. And I said, I think that's fabulous. Number one, you can pay for the coffee. Um, but also, number two, you know, he mea to ki You are such a rarity. It's our job at the Commission to speak to all of the diverse Māori groups that are out there and Māori millionaires, bless their cotton socks, you know, I'm sure there's hundreds of them. The majority of our people are not in that circumstance. And where the Crown has had a role in creating structure and equity, it is responsible for addressing that. And that's what the treaty is all about, and that's what the Waitangi Tribunal co-popper inquiries are now about. So our job is to be able to say, create an opportunity for those stories to be told in people's own terms, and take those stories on so that they can be heard unfiltered by the government. And in that way, we're kind of brokers, we're sort of mediators. But it is our job to broker and to mediate in ways that are consistent with the treaty. That's the research challenge to me, to be able to deliver an outcome with those values. Why do you think um, Te Tiriti is important for the community and voluntary sector as a whole to learn about and, and to consider? So here's the thing. There are two treaty partners in Aotearoa, Tangata Whenua and Tangata Tiriti. And it doesn't actually matter where you are or who you are, except in those two forms. You are either tangata whenua or you are tangata tiriti. So it is just as important for the NGO and the community sector to be 100% gold standard informed about the treaty as it is for Treasury or the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet or for the courts Because if we don't hold that view, what we're really saying is we hold the courts and the Crown to a higher standard than some of our parts of our community. And my view is we are treaty partners 
And wherever we are, whichever sector we are in, whichever iwi we are from, we hold our space to the highest standard. For those in the community and voluntary sector, what are three key tips you have for those that wish to embark on this journey? Sure. Number one, come from love. Aren't we so lucky in Aotearoa that we have te tiriti or waitangi? We created a blueprint in this country that no one else in the world was prepared to. Aren't we fabulous in our vision and in our design? So come from love. Love what our ancestors created. So number two, be informed. There's fabulous resources out there. There's fabulous training out there. The things that are possible when the treaty is is implemented are just amazing. When we were at ACC, our team, our cultural capability team, helped ACC gather the evidence that it needed to fund Rongoa. We did that. We went to Matatini. We went to Iron Māori, we went to Ratana, we interviewed 850 Māori people about Rongoa and we gathered the evidence that ACC needed to change their minds. Awesome way to show that Mātauranga Māori and the excitement and love of our people for our traditions gave ACC the evidence to change their policy. Three forms of Rongoa are now funded by ACC. So number two is be informed. And number three, don't give up. You might set yourself on a journey that every now and then feels a bit steep. But again, you know, we don't give up. And that's the other thing I think is really important here. The treaty educational journey is a long journey, but the benefits to all of us are the nation that the treaty promised us, and it's worth investing in. Absolutely. And uh, you mentioned earlier that there are some uh, special hui gatherings um, where our whānau and communities can come together and talk about the future of retirement for Māori. One, how do they find out more information about these kaupapa? So they can go onto our website, search what does retirement look like for Māori and the link will come up. Um, We are widely circulating the information through every network (laughs) that we have access to. There is a hui in Christchurch on February the 17th, the hui in Waitangi on March the 8th, and a hui at Pipitea Marae in Wellington on March the 31st. We're also having an online portal. Um, It's not the culturally preferred way to gain access um, to people's thinking, but for people in the disability community, for people who may be older and whose whānau might say, COVID-19, you're not going to a public hui, the portal will enable them to still have their say. That portal is accessed on our website as well. Thank you so much for your insights into your background, your childhood, what's shaped you as a mama, a grandmother, a researcher, evaluator, and also as an agent of change inside the machinery of government. We've all really, really enjoyed hearing your story and your perspective. And I guess we won't truly know or understand until you publish your books uh, the impact and the influence that you've had in creating quite significant social change in the hidden areas of life that we may not fully be aware of but I just wish to acknowledge you and the significant contribution and also congratulations on your recent New Year's honours as well which means that Aotearoa as a whole have also acknowledged the contribution you've made to this nation. Now I did ask earlier Um, And you did say that you 
loved to sing. Now, unfortunately, at that time, you weren't able to be the Tina Turner of Aotearoa or the opera singer that you hoped. However, I know that you have got a voice, so I would love to ask you, please, Cathy, to round us off with a waiata of your choice for our listeners. And also, just thank you all for tuning into this session today. Um, we hope that you've enjoyed it as much as we have, and we look forward to bringing more of those to you. Noreda, ihoa, kea kuitewa. Well, this is from Apirananata and from Ngati Territory, and it's called Etipu Area. Tipu Ere to a podcast by Community Research, working together to raise the mana of community research across Aotearoa, New Zealand. Mm-hmm.